Good morning, gents. Good to see you today. Happy New Year to you. Hey, let me put in a plug for this uh, retreat. You know, we've been having a good time going through Revelation, and it's uh, it's kind of hairy, especially with the chapter that we have uh, today and the successive ones. But uh, it's a Bible exposition, you know, and we talk about a lot of important things here, but we're going through the Word of God in sequence and trying to understand uh, a very important and complicated book of the Bible. We've said here that one of our goals is if we can just get re- if we can just reclaim Revelation back to our own Bibles so that it becomes a useful book for us, this will have been time well spent, and I hope that you're getting your book of Revelation back chapter by chapter as we go through. But uh, during the retreat, we're going to kind of cut to the chase, and the Rocky and I, what we intend to do <clears throat> is... Uh, to talk about the key issues that we see men dealing with. You say, you guys are preachers, what do you know? We're talking to you, idiot. <laughs> no, we have these things ourselves. We struggle. Rocky and I do. And so we, we don't have to talk to you very much. We, we just look at our own souls. We know what we deal with as men. We see it in you too. And we have about five or six things, basically, that we'd like to share with you if you can make it. It's... Uh, February, I believe it's 11, 12, 13, uh, Abraham Lincoln's birthday. So you just come on out. We'll celebrate old Abe uh, together. Bring your golf clubs, your tennis racket, fishing rod, and then anything else you need. Usually if men have those things, they don't need a whole lot else. Oh, bring your Bible. Don't forget that. We will make reference to that. Uh, But we'd love to have you. So if there's any way you can pull away for that time or even part of it, uh, please take advantage of it. Sign-up sheets are back there. Is that right? On the tables. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That big, that big golden sheet. So please, uh, please do sign up. Plan to, plan to be with us if you can make it at all. Bring a friend, and it'll just be a good time of fellowship and looking at some key issues together, and getting to know each other better too. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope you'll be there. Hey, a couple of times ago, I'm going to review in just a moment where, where we've been, but a couple of times ago, one of you asked me a question, and I meant to address it the next week, and I, I failed to. And I don't, sometimes I just answer your questions over email. I hope that's all right. Sometimes you ask one that I think probably ought to be addressed by the group. And here's how the question went. We talked on December the 9th. You won't remember that's too long ago. That's a month ago. But we talked about self-reliant religion. And you may remember I made a reference to the Wizard of Oz. And that's kind of today's God. You know, it's just, it's it's a fantasy. It doesn't really exist. And all the awe and wonder and the smoke and bells and whistles, there's just a little old God behind the scenes, you know, controlling it once you really find out about this God stuff. But that what's really important is that we depend upon ourselves. That's kind of the self-reliant religion. And uh, at the same time, uh, we talked about the need... um, to take responsibility for our own lives. In fact, I, th- I think I said it in the same uh, amen lesson that you know, instead of playing the role of a victim, which is so common to people today, we need to stand up and take responsibility. So what's, how do you combine these things of being reliant upon God and dependent upon Him and at the same time taking responsibility? And I'd like to just say uh, in answer to that, I think it's a great question. I think it probably was on several of your minds. I'm sorry we didn't address it earlier. But I think this is one of the keys to learning how to be a a man and to be a leader. It's both that we find ourselves completely dependent upon the Lord and we also find ourselves to be 
probably the gender of the two that's uh, taking the initiative. And we're, we tend to be more proactive and aggressive. And that is not a denial of dependence upon the Lord. Let me give you a perfect example. The Apostle Paul. He said, I, I've been he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now look at the Apostle Paul and look how aggressive he was. The man was making missionary plans to conquer the world for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't conquering the world, but Christ was going to conquer the world through him. And he was going to die doing it, and he actually did die doing it. So here's a man who was very aggressive, made very forward plans, and yet constantly was depending upon the Lord. So, for example, uh, the Apostle Paul at one point, remember uh, 2 Corinthians, he says, he talks about his ministry, trying to reach the world for Christ. He said, who's equal to this task? Task? Who's sufficient for these things? And you expect him to say, well, nobody is. It's kind of like a rhetorical question. Who's up to this? Nobody. But that's not the answer. You get to the end of 2 Corinthians, and he's calling out to the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So because of my grace, you are equal to the task. So gentlemen, rise up. And let's go conquer the world. Who's sufficient for these things? You are. Because you're depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does this play out in daily life? This means that you're constantly in prayer. You're constantly looking for His direction. You're constantly picking up this book and saying, Lord, what are your orders for today? So you're a man under orders. But you're still a general out there. You're a field general. You're not the commander-in-chief, but you're a field general conducting the battle on the field. And the commander-in-chief tells you what, what's going to happen. Here's where you get the orders. And then you, your prayer is communicating back to headquarters and asking for his help and asking for supplies and asking for reinforcements and asking for change of direction if need be. Dynamic planning. So it's a man who's, who's aggressive, but a man who's always talking to headquarters, always doing the will of the commander-in-chief. And there, there's how you put it together. So it is not self-reliance. It is reliance upon Christ. But reliance upon Christ does make us, if we can put it this way, self-sufficient. Because ourselves are infused with Christ. Paul says, Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So we live our lives. We plan our lives. We're aggressive about our lives. But we do it because Christ is living in us. This is the mystery the Apostle Paul talks about. Here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's, that's how we put that together, and I thought that was a great question. I wanted to back up and deal with that. Now, let's look just for a moment at the background of where we've been. Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation. Fish your head and notice that's the last book in your Bible. Revelation, and in chapter 1, you remember, John was given a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. It all starts with Christ. We can't look at history or look at the future or look at the meaning in life without looking first to Christ. And we saw in the latter half of John chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 1, Christ is glorious. His face is radiant like the sun. And John fell down before Him as though dead. And it was Christ who said, get up. So when we've seen Christ as He is, it's an awesome vision. And that's the beginning of everything. That's the reason that if you haven't come to Christ yet, given Him your life, None of this will really pull together for you inside your own being until you've given your life to Christ like a man who's seen who Christ really is, exalted, lifted up, worthy of praise. 
Then in Revelation 2 and 3, we saw that John heard from Christ. He heard words from Christ. There were messages to the churches. Christ speaks to His church. And He did so through John, who was in exile on the island of Patmos. He was being persecuted by the Roman Empire, put in, into exile. He was having too much influence, this religious leader. So he didn't have personal contact with the churches, but he could send letters to them. And he had a vision from Christ and a word from Christ, and he sent letters to the churches. Then, in the midst of all this turmoil, remember he was writing to churches who were very weak and struggling, facing the same kinds of problems that we're facing. And in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of all the chaos, a man would obviously be very discouraged. He's in his senior years. He's close to his own death. He's now exiled from the churches that he loves, the people he wants to pastor. He hears about all kinds of problems. He can't get there himself to do anything about it. All he can do is send these letters. And then he gets a vision of who's really in charge of the church. And it's not the pastor. Aren't you glad? It's not the elder. It's not the... Yeah, I heard an amen here. It's not the vestry. <laughs> It's not the vestry. It's not the deacons. It's not the Sunday school teachers. It's not the one who gives the biggest offering. You're not in charge of the church. Jesus Christ is in charge of His church. And John gets a vision in heaven to see who's in charge. And I, I hate to do this to you again to show you this awful computer-generated art. I mean, my handiwork is much better. I realize this. But this is what we saw. That Here's the throne. And the one who is the Lamb of God is near the throne. He had the four living creatures. And I have all this lightning and thunder. And you have these uh, the 24 elders, these little boxes, have myriads of angels. And every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth gathered around the throne, praising God. That, that's who we're dealing with. Okay, So that was the vision that John was given in Revelation 4 and 5 to remind him who's in charge of history, who's in charge of the church, who's taking care of this business. Who's locking up at night? Who's opening up in the morning? Who's giving us directions for the day? John got his eyes and ears full of reality. You know what? This is the biggest need in the church today. It really is. The biggest need in the church today. If, we, if this happens to us this very morning, the church will be just fine. <laughs> the biggest need in the church today is to get a vision of Jesus Christ and the one who sits upon the throne and remember again who's in charge and remember his character. That will take care of just about every problem you've got, ultimately. But that was the scene that we saw, uh, bringing this up then to chapter 6. Now, it, remember in chapter 5, there was this scroll. And the one on the throne had the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And we saw last time that surely this scroll uh, symbolized the future of this world and the meaning of history, and the decree of God over all of it, here were the secrets of the, of the universe tied up in this scroll. And John, who is suffering, who's an old man, who's concerned about the church and the kingdom of God, wants to know, God, what's your plan? And here it is. He's looking at it. It's in the hand of God. Who's going to get it? And we saw that John began to sob because no one in heaven or earth, no one anywhere was found worthy worthy to lift up his hand to the hand of God and take the decrees of God and unscroll it and show us what's happening and what the meaning of all of it is. So he just broke down a web because now life is meaningless. I don't understand it all. Why all this chaos? Why this persecution? What's God's plan? Are we going to make it? Are we going to be all right? 
Is the church going to survive to the end? All of that now becomes unknown to John. He's first sobbing. And then the Lamb reaches up and takes the scroll and begins to open its seals. Now we're going to find out the answer to these questions that will buttress the church and every man who has a purpose in life will find that his purpose is rooted in the very purposes of God and that his, his, his personal history is parallel to the very history that God has decreed for the, for the cosmos. Ah, now it's beginning to happen. So, now it's all going to unroll before us. We're going to see it now played out. It's going to be put on the... I'm sure you had an overhead transparency. And he's going to put it all... All right, it was PowerPoint. He's uh, going to put it all out before us and we're going to see history unfold. And that's what brings us to Revelation chapter 6. Now history is going to be unfolded for us. The secrets are going to be made known. And the church is going to be encouraged and built up. Let's take a look at it. Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at the whole chapter. <clears throat> I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned red, blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? 
Amen. All right. Let's take a little a little peek here at uh, Revelation 6. How long, Sovereign Lord? First thing I want us to notice is that in the opening of the first seal, we get this print, the first four seals, we get this principle, God rules over this world's chaos. And notice that the first four seals kind of hang together. <clears throat> you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so-called. You have four living creatures saying, come, in each case. You have that four times. Obviously, these four episodes hang together. They have parallels that make that very, very clear. And what we'll be able to see is that uh, the, the first four seals hang together. The fifth seal has its own meaning. And the sixth seal has a separate meaning. That's how it's going to divide out. So in verses 1 through 8, we've got these four seals. And you're going to see in each of these cases clear evidence that John is picking up that God is ruling over the chaos that we're experiencing in our own day. Now, if you'll back up for just a moment and look at this framework that I put on the tables for you. Four interpretive frameworks for Revelation 4 through 8, or really 4 through 7. Now, you remember a few weeks ago I gave you a similar list that just simply showed the four interpretive frameworks for Revelation 4 through 20. So this is just picking up on the same theme, and you can compare these two, and hopefully they'll be consistent. And I, I want to take just a moment to look at this, because uh, just to keep in mind there are different <coughs> perspectives here. As we, I think, saw a few weeks ago, every one of these frameworks is represented in this room. So, uh, and you uh, uh, guessed or tried to guess which one I was, and we, I think, determined that I'm over on the right-hand side of that column there. But I want you to see how your, whatever framework you've got plays out here. And I'm going to be trying to work this right-hand column because I do believe that this symbolism will show us as, it, as we find out where in the Bible it comes from and so on, that probably the meaning I'm giving you seems to be the most logical one. But I want you to see that basically it starts with your presupposition. What is the scope of history we're talking about? And if you just look at that first line, it kind of shows you how these four interpretive frameworks look at chapters 4, 5, or rather chapter 6 and 7, and see them in different frameworks. The preterist viewpoint, which remember has to do with the fall of Jerusalem, that the great cataclysm that's coming is that in 70 AD Jerusalem is going to fall, and those who hold to that view who are evangelical believe that Revelation was written before 70 AD. It was predicting 70 AD. And so the scope of history is the judgment and destruction of Jerusalem. That's what chapters 5, 6, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 6 and 7 are all about, says the preterist. The historicist, remember, sees a view of history being covered uh, right from the Christian era all the way up until uh, the modern times. And so what they would see in chapter 6 and 7 is the fall of the Roman Empire and the, the establishment of the Christian Empire uh, uh, under Constantine. So then that would happen first, of course. You have the establishment of the Christian Empire under Constantine and then later the fall of the Roman Empire. That's what the historicist is seeing. And we saw that Luther and other reformers would have held to that view. Now the futurist, which is probably the most popular position, would say that what happened in chapter 4, verse 1, was the rapture of the church. That when John saw had his vision in heaven, that symbolized that the whole church had gone into heaven. So that all of these events have to do 
with history after the church is raptured. And of course, as you know, I don't feel very comfortable with that because for one thing, the rapture of the church is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 4. And secondly, one of the implications would be that Revelation 4 through 20 is irrelevant for us today. And I believe that John was writing to people who desperately needed a word of encouragement for their own day. And then you see the idealist perspective that what we're speaking about is the period between Bethlehem and the Mount of Olives. In other words, the period between the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and His second coming, which is the age in which we live now. So that the history, the scope of history that's being covered is this period between the ages that we're living in right now between incarnation and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those historical frameworks will now set the way that you interpret these chapters. So I just give that to you as an apologetic, sort of a, an explanation for why you're going to hear from me what you hear and the way I interpret it, because I do assume, for reasons covered previously, that the scope of history we're dealing with in Revelation is the scope of history the church is living in right now. Thus, the letters to the seven churches, the encouragement to the churches to try to build the churches up to face the evil of their own day. So, given that, what we're looking at in the opening of the seals is the unfolding of history from the first advent of Christ until the second advent of Christ. The scope that we're living in right now and the evils that are to be explained and justified in the minds of the church are the evils that you are facing right now. The tsunamis and the hurricanes and the earthquakes and the warfare, all that you're seeing right now in the 21st century and the centuries prior, that's what's being explained by the angel to the apostle John. And that is what John is explaining to the churches. So here we have it. God rules over this world's chaos. And what you need to do is to look in Zechariah toward the end of your Old Testament. And in chapters 1 and 6, you will see that Zechariah uses similar imagery of four horses of different colors. Or in chapter 6, it's basically four chariots with horses of different colors. So this is a familiar image John is appealing to in his vision. Uh, He's been given a vision that God has already revealed through Zechariah. Now, it's not exactly the same, but the idea of four horses in Zechariah going to all parts of the earth, north, south, east, and west, covering the whole earth, is the same thing we have here with the four living creatures who are you know, calling those horses, come, and they come, and then they're sent out. It's the same kind of mentality that you have in Zechariah. And the purpose in Zechariah, of course, is to explain God's sovereignty over all of history. So that's the reason that we say that's what's happening here with these first four seals with four horsemen uh, who are going uh, over the earth. Now, the first one, verses 1 and 2, is the idea of conquest on the white horse. Why is that? Because he is given a crown. Now, I'm going to put in the column here where we normally have our verses. I've got here also, you'll notice, Matthew 24, 6. And you'll see some other Matthew verses. The reason for those parallels is that Jesus Christ gives what is known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. It parallels in Luke 21 and Mark 13. And in Mark 24, he goes through the same sort of order. So John uh, is, in his revelation, what he is seeing is completely consistent with what he heard his Lord say that day on the Mount of Olives as Jesus Christ was predicting the end 
and talking about the struggles and the sufferings of this present age. And see, that's another reason that I'm suggesting to you that the history that's being covered is the same history that Jesus was covering on the Mount of Olives. So we have a parallel not only in the Old Testament, but then with the teachings of our Lord. And what we have here is this first horse. It's a white horse. Now let's look at him. In verses 1 and 2, it's rider, verse 2b, held a bow. And he was given a crown. Now what's very interesting, if you look back on this master list I've got here, if you look at the interpretations of this white horse, let's look at that just, just for a minute. You'll see under the futurist that this white horse and rider is the Antichrist riding forth to conquer the world. Look what the idealist says. It's Christ. <laughs> okay, that's good. At least we agree about something. Now you can't get more diametrically opposed than that. One says it's Antichrist and the other says it's Christ. Well, I'm going to really shake things up. I don't think it's either one. I think it's just a symbol for the conquests that are going on in the world. The Romans had conquests. The Greeks had conquests. Persians had conquests. Egyptians had conquests. There are going to be more conquests after that, including conquests of the British Empire and the French Empire and others. And this is just simply a symbol of those who are going through the world to have conquests. And people who are under that conquest are saying, what in the fret is happening here? Somebody's invading my land. In fact, you know, the Israelites had that question when the Babylonians came and invaded and had conquest over them. What's the meaning of this? Has the world fallen apart? Has God let go of the steering wheel? And what John is seeing in this vision, no, God didn't let go of the steering wheel. This is God's steering wheel. Who gave this man the crown? He was given the crown by the four living creatures or by God Himself. So you don't have conquests happening in history that are mistakes or accidents or things that surprise God. What John is seeing is that God is ruling this world, including even its evil. Now this raises some big problems. Big problems. Turn with me to Habakkuk. I know you probably won't find it. You'll be rooting around while I'm talking about it because you're not going to find it. I'm not sure I'm going to find it. It's in here somewhere in the Minor Prophets. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. There you go. In my Bible, it's page 829. I don't know about your Bible. Habakkuk. Habakkuk's got a complaint. And you see in chapter 1, verse 2, he's got a complaint. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help but you don't listen? Okay, so here's the complaint. Things are falling apart around here, Lord. Church is getting pretty bad. People are sleeping with each other, don't belong to them in marriage. They're divorcing and they're having kids everywhere and they're cheating each other and they're not showing justice to the poor and they're not taking care of the alien. Things are bad down here, Lord, and I've been complaining about this a long time. I'd like to know where you are. So God says, okay, I'm going to show up and I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to send the bloodthirsty Babylonians to wipe you out. <laughs> That's not exactly what I had in mind, Lord. Now look in chapter 1 at his complaint. He says in verse uh, 12, here's his second complaint. Okay, the Lord answers his first complaint. Now Habakkuk's not through complaining. This is a good Jewish man. He's got a dialogue with the Lord. Lord, I've got to talk to you about a few things. See? 
O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, operative word here, God, is holy, remember? We will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you've ordained them to punish? That is, God, you're picking those people to punish your people? Come on, give me a break, God. And then he goes on to say, Your eyes, verse 13, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. How come you pick these bloodthirsty, evil, wicked, adulterous Babylonians to discipline your church by wiping out Jerusalem with those people? Now, if you did it with angels, that'd be fine. But Babylonians? Habakkuk's got a problem. God is going to use evil people to discipline His church. Well, the Babylonians come. And while they're coming, look at the end of it. You get Habakkuk's prayer. And look at verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16, the very end of this. I heard. What He heard what? He heard the hoofbeats. <laughs> he, heard, he felt the ground shaking as the Babylonians were coming. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Here's a man who's absolutely terrified with these Chaldeans who were coming down upon him. Decay crept into my bones. You ever felt that? And my legs trembled. I don't know if you've ever been that afraid. Maybe the last time you gave a speech. <laughs> that doesn't get you afraid usually. Your heart is pounding. Your legs are trembling. Yet, look at this. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Interesting. Now, actually, if you want to know the truth, the Hebrew is a little um, unclear at this point. We're not sure if the Hebrew says we, we will wait patiently for the day of calamity uh, to come by the nation that's invading us or on the nation. So we don't know if it's calamity for the Israelites or for the Chaldeans. But the point is, I think it's intentionally obscure because it's both ways. Calamity is going to come on them. We'll see that in a minute. And calamity comes on us too, even by evil means. And then look how he goes on to finish his statement of faith in God, regardless of the circumstances. Verse 17, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. That's an odd time to use the word Savior, isn't it? When you're getting ready to get be wiped out. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And this says it's for the director of music. This thing was meant to be sung often and beautifully. Because God is sovereign over your chaos, gentlemen. And when you have felt like, oh, poor me, you know, I just never get a break. I guess God just doesn't want me to be successful. I guess He just didn't want me to be a very good Christian. I mean, look at all this chaos that comes my way. And some of you are just Eeyore, Eeyore, Eeyore. And you use that as an excuse not to take responsibility for what you're supposed to do. That's the reason you do it. You make excuses. You're the victim. Everything always goes against you so that you don't have any responsibility to do anything about it. What Habakkuk is showing us, yes, we've got a complaint. Lord, this is not the way I would do it. Lord, this doesn't feel very good. Lord, this seems to oppose every sense of justice I've got in my own mind. What are you doing, Lord? And then he does it. And he explains that he does use evil and he controls evil even to discipline his church and he's in charge of it. And the Chaldeans are going to get to come up in one day. But meanwhile, we're under that discipline. And there's our statement of faith. 
though the fig tree does not blossom, and there are no, there's no fruit on the vine, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the flock, or in the fold, or whatever we call cattle, herd, whatever it is, no money in the bank, no job to go to, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. Why? Because He controls the universe and He happens to be my God. So what John is learning early in the midst of a persecuted church and a persecuted life, an old life that seems to be slipping away without connection to God's purposes, is that there are purposes and He is in connection to it. Then you see even violence is the same way. The red horse is a horse of violence. And what do we see there? He's given power. You say, what about all this terrorism? It just seems to be the absolute antithesis of God. How can this be explained? Well, I don't know. Some things are inexplicable. How do I explain these people taking each other's lives? Apparently no justification whatsoever. I don't know. It's hard to explain. But we do know this. God controls evil. What was the most evil thing accomplished on the face of the earth? Think about it. When was the most wicked, violent moment in all of the millennia of history? Yeah, the cross of Calvary. There was the one man who lived a perfect life and deserved not to be mistreated, deserved not to face violence, and he was put to death in an ignominious way. There was the worst case of injustice in the history of the world. And what are we told about it? He was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge that he was handed over to wicked men. Now, if you want a problem, there's a problem. The worst case of injustice. Now, if God appointed that moment, you can be sure that in your moments of injustice, they've been appointed for you. And if you lose an arm or a leg or a life, it's appointed for you. You know, I, I can't help but when I just look in the news and look at our young men walking the streets of Baghdad and Kirkuk and other places, Mosul, just to being thankful to God for them and their bravery. And there are a lot of things going on in this world a lot of Americans are accomplishing right now, but those guys are really sticking their necks out. And uh, with all the controversy that we have politically about whether this battle should be going on in the first place, uh, there's some guys out there that are putting their lives on the line to prosecute it. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I just pray for those men because uh, this is a great time for them to get in touch with their Savior. And to know that, you know, we, if you're in Christ, it really doesn't matter. You know, God has appointed your day and the way you're going to go too. But you need to be sure you're in Him. And the fact of the matter is we're all in danger. That maybe their schedule has been uh, escalated a little bit to face death for some of them. But look, guys, you're going to face it too. It's just a matter of time. And the same question is pressing upon all of us. Is the God of this universe your God? And you know Him in such a way that you know that whatever's appointed for you, it's ultimately for your good and ultimately for your glory. We'll see how that works out in the end. But here the point that's being made is this violence is coming out of heaven. It's not that He's the author of violence, but He's calling that horse, whistling up that horse and sending it out and giving them power to make men slay each other. Do you see the language here? I don't know. It's pretty explicit. So... What's the meaning of this? How does this all work out? Well, you look in Job. First chapter of Job. All Job's evils come because God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
And then Satan goes and does the dirty deed. And God restrains him. Job, uh, uh, Satan cannot take Job's soul. That's what God says. You can take everything else. And he does. His health, his children, his wealth. What's the point of all of it? Well, you get to the end of Job, and Job is faithful, remains faithful to the Lord amidst all the evils that confront him. And you know all the debates that go on, the debates about a good God and an evil world that go on between Job and his friends. His friends are saying, Job's got to be your fault. And Job says, no, not my fault. And they're both wrong. The answer is, God's the Lord of all of history. And Job has that opened up to him at the end of Job. And then what happens? He gets, his, gets more children. He gets his wealth back. He gets his health back. Still got his nagging wife. Too bad. <laughs> but he gets it all back. And what is the ultimate story in Job? The story is that God's glory is vindicated in His servant Job because no matter what happens to Job, as Job says, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. And Job trusts Him through all of His difficulties and then ultimately Job is vindicated and more importantly, God's glory is vindicated. God's sovereignty is vindicated. That's the story of Job. It's a drama about God working through the evils of history to accomplish His ultimate good ends for His own glory and the welfare of His people. And it's hard to see that when you have boils all over your body like Job did. It's hard to see that there's any purpose to this. But what Job shows us is the purpose is that there's a drama going on. You're the play actor, and the angels are looking on, and they're saying, you know, doesn't matter what you do to this guy, he's going to honor the Lord. Boy, that salvation stuff that God's got, it must be powerful. Look, it preserves a man even in the midst of that difficulty. And the real, the real play, the real drama that's going on is to display the glory of God's grace in keeping His people through all evils. But the subplot is that God's in control of all of it. So it's very clear here as well as elsewhere in the Bible. Then thirdly, you get the black horse, which is famine. And these things are going on now. There's violence in the world. There's conquest going on in the world. And there's famine going on in the world. I was reading, uh, I don't know if any of you read The Economist, but I'll usually pick up a few articles in there time to time. I was reading that uh, this past week, and I, I just saw this about how the, the whole idea of an American meritocracy is really being brought into question in Europe. You know, the Americans like to say, well, we don't have these royal families and your legacies, and, you know, it's every man for himself, and the best always rise to the top, and it's a meritocracy, uh, you know, rather than an aristocracy. But the Europeans are saying, well, hang on just a minute. Uh, in the United States... In 1979, or if you take the incomes of U.S. citizens from 79 to 2000, okay, the lower 20% of income in the United States grew by 6.4% in 21 years, okay? So the, lower, the lowest 20% income-wise in our country grew by 6.4%. Do you know what the top 1% grew by? 184%. Get this. The top 1% in 1979 made 133 times what the bottom 20% made. And in 2000, they make 189 times what the bottom 20% make. Doesn't sound too much like a meritocracy, does it? In 1979... The top CEOs, 100, top 100 CEOs in our country, made 39 times what their average workers in their companies made. 
And in 2000, they made a thousand times what an average worker makes. The top 1% in the U.S. earned 20%. The top 1% earned 20% of all the income in the U.S. last year. And they own, the top 1% own a third of our country. Now, what that shows is that the trend is toward impoverishing the poor at the expense of the rich. Look at the text. And I'm saying to you, I think this is a judgment of God. Just that simple. Look at this, because I look at the text and you'll see what I mean. He says, When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Okay? Now, what are these scales for? Well, here you get it in verse 6. I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages. Okay? So you want to make some bread for yourself? Take your quart of wheat. You know how much it's going to cost you? Your whole day's wages. Keep reading. And three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Okay, so you got a wife and a kid. you got three mouths to feed. All right, three quarts. Not wheat. We're going to get a little cheaper here, boys. We're going down to barley. So you can feed your family with barley. How much is it going to cost you? A whole day's wages. You can forget rent and clothing and everything else. But then look at this. Do not do damage to the oil and the wine. We're going to preserve the specialties for our upper classes. We're not going to charge them a whole lot for their champagne and their caviar. We're going to keep supplying them what their precious little souls need for their daily life of exquisite behavior. But for the poor, it's going to get more expensive all the time. I'm sure you won't mind. A little heavier taxation. To be sure we take care of the top 1%. Now, you say, where's all this stuff coming from the U.S.? I say, John is learning where it comes from. It comes from the throne of God who is judging our own country. We have a lot of ways of thinking about how this country is being judged. You can look at the sexual immorality in the country. I'm telling you that too is a judgment of God. We're being handed over. Decade by decade being handed over. Romans chapter 1. It's an act of judgment. When wicked people get handed over to further wickedness, that's God's judgment. You see, He's in control. It's not as though the world is going to be able to throw off their chains and say, no longer is God going to rule us. We're going to have our own way of living here. No, all they're doing is making their life more miserable and bringing self-destruction and ultimately bringing the judgment of God. That's what John is learning. Don't worry about it, boys. He's going to take care of all this. And don't worry about the poor getting ripped off. You do your part and you support the poor. By the way, talking about the poor for just a moment. If you haven't yet given for Indian Ocean Relief, you should. (laughs) And I've got a good idea for you. It's called World Relief. It's a Christian agency that works through Christian people. And there are a few of them in that area. Not many, but a few. And they'll work through Christian people to deliver material goods, which will ultimately help build up the church in Indonesia, which badly needs it, India, and Thailand, and Sri Lanka, and other places. So if you're interested, uh, you can just make your check out to World Relief, and you can send it to me or send it to this church. We're sending some stuff onto World Relief this very week. So you can leave a check with somebody at the door if you want to. Uh, Take care of the poor. And when you don't, it's just going to get worse. 
because this is part of God's judgment that He'll just give you, the wealthy, more and more and more. And you think it's a blessing, and it's not. It's a curse. And so when I see numbers like this, I just see our country going to hell in a handbasket. Just as I do when I look at the sexual mores. They're together. You look at the prophets and you find the big three. It's idolatry, it's sexual immorality, and it's social injustice. That's what the prophets hammer all the time in the Old Testament. And I just beg you, you look at our own culture and see what's happening. But John's, the point John's getting here is, hey folks, it's not that God's not in control anymore. He's in control, probably more than you want. And then look at the fourth seal. Here we get death. It's the pale horse. Now, folks, this is kind of awesome. Look at verse 7. You have this, they call up and say, come, and look before me is a pale horse. Now, look at the writer's name, death. And look at his partner, Hades. Say, hey, pal, what's your name? My name's death, and this is my friend, hell. (laughs) These are hell's angels right here, pal. I mean, these guys are rough. And what they're bringing is death and destruction. Look, they've got it all in their hand. They've got a kill by the sword. If that doesn't work, they'll try famine. If that doesn't work, they'll hit you with a plague. If that doesn't work, they just pour some wild beasts on you. These guys are, man, these guys are tough. Now, all the evils you can think of in this world are kind of piled up in this one. The death and Hades, these pals who are going around the world. Uh, this is evil being wreaked upon the earth. And it's not that God is causing it. God is not death in Hades. God is not death in hell. But God is using death and hell. Death and hell are in His hands. They're opposed to God, but they're not outside of His control. He's controlling death and hell. And He's reminding John of this. John, I've got the steering wheel, pal. I don't need any help. I've got it. And so He's showing He is Lord of all the earth. Uh, this past week... Um, there was a, an article uh, in the... Uh, there was an editorial by Wendy Thomas in the Commercial Appeal. And it was asking about, you know, why is there evil in this world with a good God and so on. And, and I had just preached this last Sunday. For those of you not at Second Presbyterian, I had just preached this last Sunday a sermon I had planned six months ago called, If God is Good, Why is There Evil in the World? <laughs> now, I don't think that God did that tsunami just for my sermon schedule. I don't think He did that. But it was, it was providential, wasn't it? So I just preached on this, and we got up that morning and looked at the paper. My wife said, do you think you ought to just send a tape to Wendy Thomas? I said, nah. I said, somebody in our church will do that. Sure enough, Joe Abrams did it. (laughs) Uh, By the way, if if you are not a member of Second, if you'd like to get a copy of that, I, I walked through philosophically and theologically, how do we deal with evil in this world with a good God? It's a peculiar problem for a Christian theist, and it's one that's commonly asked. And you can pick that up, I think, in the bookmark or get it off the website. Uh, get it on the audio file on the website. So just you do amen. But here, once again, these, these folks, death and hell, are given power. They don't have the power of their own. They're given the power. So this first point is God rules over this world's chaos. Now, secondly, notice that God rescues the world's martyrs. The Lamb opens the fifth seal, and what happens? We find faithful martyrs under the altar. And this parallels Matthew 24, 9-14. Faithful martyrs will be rewarded. They will be rescued. And you find them up there in heaven. John saw some of his old buddies up there. I was wondering what happened to you, Peter. Paul, I was wondering how it felt when you had your head chopped off. There you are. You got your head back. You got a nice robe on. That's nice. Boys look good. 
They're all in safekeeping. You don't have to worry about those men and women who have been martyred in the past. You don't have to worry about your grandmother who died a tough death. But she was a believer in Christ. You're going to see her again. She's in good keeping. The Lord's in charge of that too. He's got the martyrs in His hands. And secondly, you see that those martyrs are up there singing the song. What does that song sound like? Well, I'm not going to sing it. But it's how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Boy, that sounds kind of bloodthirsty, doesn't it? can't imagine my grandmother saying that. Yeah, I can too. Come think of it. <laughs> she, she was a Wilson after all. Uh, but you see, Christians are to be those who are kind and merciful and forgiving. But Christians are not wimps. The Muslims are packing everything into this life. If you give shirk or blasphemy to Allah, whack with your head comes off. If you invade a country that we don't want Christians in, whack, off comes your head. So there's this very visceral, physical violence that's uh, evil. But you see here, they're, avenging, they're calling for avenging of blood too. The Christian martyrs, these nice people with white robes are asking for blood. Why? Because we're born with a sense of justice and the reason we're born with it is because God has a sense of justice and we know what's right and what's wrong. All you have to do is watch the kids in the playground. That's not fair, they say. And then one hits another one. He hits back. Up and, hit. and then you've, been ch- you've chased people all over the playground. See who can push the last one last. Gotcha! And then you run off. And it's, What is that? It's vindication. It's built into your system. And there's a sense in which it's right because God is a God of justice. And these martyrs are saying, we didn't get justice in that life down there. God is saying to John, hang on, pal. The key to the Christian life is not that we give up on justice. It's that we have a long view. We've got a big God. And He's going to handle things. And you may not believe it yet, worldling, but when you, take, when you give the church your worst shot, you've got lots worse coming back at you. And what does He say to the martyrs? Okay, put on your white robe and they're told to wait. <laughs> Sounds like my mother. Just wait. Just wait. Be patient. I've not, not been known to be patient in my life. I heard that lesson a lot. And here you get it in Revelation. They're just told, hang on. Keep singing your song. I'm glad you want this world to be brought to an end and for justice to be displayed. That's a good thing. Justice is going to be displayed. Hang on. Why hang on? Until the other martyrs join you. Why hang on? Because I haven't gotten all of my people yet. So, yeah, you want to see justice displayed. You want to be vindicated. That's a good thing. It's going to happen. But you've got to wait until the Lord does all of His good work and calls in all of His people from around the world, this world of chaos and pain. And then we'll be ready for the sixth seal, which is exactly what we get. And in the sixth seal, you see this thing is awesome. God returns to this world. And it's exactly what you get in Matthew 24. Look at the cosmos. It quakes. And what you're going to see in all that quaking in verses 12 through 16 are all these Old Testament parallels. John's just, he is seeing everything that was predicted in the Old Testament. The earthquakes, the sun turning black, the moon turning blood red, the stars falling from the sky, the sky splitting, the mountains and the islands moving, and men hiding and saying it'd be better to be covered with rocks than to face the face the face of an angry God. All in the Old Testament. All these images coming out that are images of the last day 
when Christ returns, when God brings judgment. And then you see Christ avenges at the very end and they say, who can endure the day of His wrath? This comes from Malachi chapter 3, Old Testament again. Who can endure the day of His coming? He'll be like a refiner's fire. Some of you read that text during the Advent season. The advent of God, the coming of God. Who can endure this day? People in the church think, oh, we can endure it. That day's for us. Are you sure? It's not going to be just because you're in the church, says Malachi, because a lot of people in the church don't believe. It's going to be for those who have believed and put their trust in the Savior and are walking with Him. Those are the ones that are going to endure, not because of their good life, but because they have a Savior whose life was good and whose record stands in their place. Okay, lastly, we've got a couple of minutes. Let's finish up with this. What difference does all this make? How ought we then to live? First thing, get reconciled to the judge of all the earth. If John sees anything clearly, it is that there is a day of judgment coming. Days of judgment were predicted over and over again in the Bible with Noah, and it came true. With the invasion of Babylon, and it came true. The invasion of Assyria, it came true. The destruction of Jerusalem predicted by Jesus, it came true. And in each case, what came true was actually worse than what was predicted. You go through each one of those and you'll find the real event was always more severe in more vivid detail than what was even given by the prophets. And so I'm saying to you what we're given is a picture. Don't think for a minute it's overstated. So get reconciled. Secondly, start living in the light of this reality. Get your hope up. Doesn't matter what your circumstances are. God's in control. He's got the steering wheel and He's got the end in view. Thirdly, encourage others to do the same. If there's a fire that's going to take place, we get people out of the building. If there's a tsunami, we send help. If there's a judgment coming, we get people ready for it. Fourthly, we join the chorus. How long, sovereign Lord? Call for Him to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to join the martyrs. Come, Lord. Avenge Yourself and Your great name and avenge Your people. And we'll be told, put on your white robe and hang on. It's going to happen. Then lastly, don't get too worked up about your persecutions. It doesn't mean that you're a wimp. It just means that you're wise. And that you know a secret. And you begin to feel pity for those who are persecuting you because you're a Christian. They're the guys who are in real trouble. You are noticed, loved, cherished, protected, and God has a glorious plan for you. Now you say, why shouldn't this unbelievably gory scene strike terror in every believer's heart? Come back next week and I'll tell you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for revealing Jesus Christ and Your sovereignty over all of history and the end of times to us, Your poor servants. Help us to live in the light of these things today, throughout this week. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.